0: So Money, Episode 709, Janine Roth, author of This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Imagine this. Imagine losing your entire life savings. And why? Because Bernie Madoff took it. You know, Bernie, that crook who lost over $50 billion worth of his client's investments in a Ponzi scheme? He is serving 150 years in federal prison, but our guest today, Janine Roth, and her husband had to pick up the pieces and renew their financial life. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, we're in conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Janine Roth, and her most recent book is called This Messy, Magnificent Life, colon, A Field Guide. It's just been released and it offers inspiring, personal, very personal, and often spiritual reflections on how we can all find peace, make wise choices, and practice everyday joy. And truly, if Janine can do it, I think there is hope for all of us. Here is Janine Roth. Janine Roth, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on this messy, magnificent life of field guide. Ah, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Let's start with the book. This is one of many books in your library of books as an author. And one of the main goals I understand in this book is to give up what you call the me project in The Messy Magnificent (laughs) Life. Can you expand on that? This idea of finding the freedom, the peace and the power that awaits us? How does that really manifest?
1: Yeah. So um, for quite a long time, I worked with my relationship with food because I suffered a lot about that. And that's what my first many books were about. And then when that got resolved and healed and refined, I realized that I wanted to use the tools that I had learned with that In the whole rest of my life, because there was a way that I was still waking up with low level anxiety, feelings of not being enough, having enough, being good enough. And so I wanted to use in the same way that I used my relationship with food as a doorway to healing. I wanted to use the so-called messiness of my life and of our lives as a doorway to transformation and to power and to the magnificence, as I call it. And part of that was not doing the continual me project, looking for the answer, answer, answer out there, taking on the next self-improvement program, but turning around and seeing what I already had. And so that's what that is.
0: Because the truth is, we think so many of us think, men, women, that if we just lose the five pounds or the 50 pounds, or we um, get the plastic surgery or the liposuction, we think that our physical appearance is going to solve all the all the ugliness inside that we are experiencing. And and that for you is o- an obvious no way. And that's why you keep writing.
1: <laughs> yes. And I also learned that. Of course, with money, because I think people go through the same thing with their money and the financial advisors I've talked to have said to me, no matter how much a person says they want to make, when they make that, have that, then they raise the bar. So it's sort of that ever higher bar. When I lose weight, then I'll be great. And then I lose weight and it's not so great. So maybe I need to lose more weight or... Um, I gain back the weight so that I can look forward to thinking it will be great when I lose the weight again. Or the same thing is true with money or relationships. It's a continual postponement of life to the future.
0: And one of your solutions, your your advice for that part of that field guide to sort of finding peace with uh, all of these insecurities that we have is to – Ignore that voice inside of us that is ultimately making us feel the way that we feel. Easier said than done, kind of. I mean, it's hard to control those voices. It's, and sometimes you just ignore them because – but you know they're there. You don't want to acknowledge them because then you'll feel even crazier.
1: <laughs> well, right. So I call that voice. It's under the umbrella of the crazy ant in the attic voice. But
0: <laughs> yeah, <And>, poor ant.
1: <laughs> oh, no offense to any ants out there.
0: <laughs> that voice
1: is the voice that every single one of us has, no matter what you call it. It's developed by the time we're four, and it's you know a developmental necessity to keep us from throwing food on the walls and biting people and running out into traffic. It's an internalized authority voice, which at some point when we were four, probably to our teens— um, was very helpful. And then at some point, and particularly now it's become maladaptive. And so it just shouts at us, blares at us, tells us what we should have done, we didn't do what we. Um, might have done, if only we were a better person. Why did we try another thing? Don't we know it's impossible? Tells us not to take risks. It wants to keep the status quo, status quo. So it's the biggest obstacle to any kind of change on any level. And one of the things that I take people through in this messy, magnificent life is how to disengage from this voice. And it's not about ignoring it. And it's not about controlling it it's about disengaging from it and real separating from it because most of us when we hear it believe it and we think it's telling the truth and so this is about discerning who we are from who this voice is, and also discerning what we need to work with, where we need to put our attention from the judgment and the morality that this voice places on us. Because we may indeed want to change something about ourselves. We might want to work towards something. There might be something we're not seeing, but having judgment and shame does not help. And fear about it, is the biggest stop to any kind of change.
0: You said four years old is when we start to develop this voice. My children are not yet four, so there's hope for them yet. (laughs) I can do whatever I want to them right now. I can say anything. I can do whatever I want. But four is my cutoff.
1: (laughs) Well, um, not exactly, Um, But anyway, this voice is just a developmental part of the ego, of the personality structure. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody's got this voice.
0: Well, I want to talk more about the money piece of your journey. It's no secret, you've talked about it publicly, that you were a victim of Bernie Madoff and his illustrious Ponzi scheme. You lost your life savings. And I don't want to... Labor that too much, but I, I'm curious how you were able to th- not just, not just get through that, but it seems like you're thriving. Uh, that, that takes an extraordinary talent and emotional willpower. I'll give you that. Maybe you don't, we are more humble to say that, but I think that's, I can't imagine going through something like that uh, and having still the career that you do and the mindset and the positivity that you do. So what, what what is your superhuman power, Janine? <laughs> I guess that's my question.
1: You know what? Um, what I did, which is what anybody can do. Uh, well, well. First of all, let me backtrack and uh, say that when we lost, it was every penny of our life savings. My husband and my combined thirty years of life savings, which we were silly enough um, to put it into one place. So, you know, talk about four, probably by the time you're eight, you know, not to do that. And we had, uh, already lost some money to another financial advisor who was a close friend who embezzled our money. And then another friend after that said to us, Oh, I, feel so bad for you. Come, I'll open up this fund that I'm invested in with this guy named Bernie Madoff, who my father has known for generations. His, you know, my friend Richard's mother had worked in Bernie Madoff's office. My friend Richard's father knew him that, you know, he was part of their whole basic extended family. And of course, for the 30 years that they had been investing It had only done well, not extraordinarily well, the way that people imagine Madoff funds did, you know, because that because it was all made up, Bernie Madoff could give some funds of his choosing 20 percent, 30 percent, our fund, which we could, when Richard opened it up to us, could put anywhere from ten thousand dollars in and up because he opened it up to his friends who really didn't know much about money. And, you know, he felt like it was in his generosity, and it actually was very generous of him to do that. So we went in very carefully. And then eventually, after a couple of years, I think we were invested in the Madoff Fund for about five years, but had had tried to take all of our money out six months before it went, um under but they you know you had to leave it in for 6 months before you could take it out so it was a very complicated thing there in any case we lost it mm-hmm. and um when i got the call that we lost everything i went into immediate shock and terror of course because i i didn't know whether we'd have enough money to make it through that month well i knew we'd have enough to make it through the month but not any more than that and i had Luckily, I had good friends who said to me, nothing of any value has been lost. And it was so shocking to hear that. And so, you know, upside down to hear that. And of course, I felt like this was not the time to be spiritual, for goodness sakes. Um, This is the time to get hysterical. But what I realized very soon was that if I was going to survive through the night Because I was in such terror and grief and shame. Talk about shame. Um, I was going to have to learn how to focus on what I hadn't lost. And that was the only way I could get through on the fact that I still had a roof over my head at that moment. The fact that I had enough to eat at that moment. The fact that I still had friends at that moment. I still had a pantry filled with food at that moment. And so there was a vigilance. About bringing myself, my mind back from the cliffs of terror and shame, an urgency and necessity to do that. Otherwise, I feel like I just would have ripped myself apart in self loathing. And so it was A or B bring myself back from the brink every time I wandered, which was probably 100 times a day, or go falling off the cliffs of shame and terror and grief and fear, uh, which, of course, is part of terror. And so I started bringing my mind back. And after a while, after about the first week of doing that, I started realizing that the way I was seeing things was different and that I was getting happier and happier and happier and happier. And that I realized that even before we had lost our money, I still lived in this low-level anxiety. I was afraid of losing it. I was afraid of so many different things, really. And when I was bringing my mind back and focusing so many times a day on what I hadn't lost the happiness and the joy started getting very, very big until after a while I was happier than I had been in a really, really long time, which of course is very surprising and which many people don't believe. But it was actually true to the point where my mother said to me after a few weeks, "Um, how are you? And I said, really happy. And she said, are you on drugs? Because she didn't quite believe that Uh, my husband and I could have lost everything and I could be really happy. But that allowed me to take the next step, to be objective about, first of all, what could I do in that moment? And so what I did was write a piece called what Bernie Madoff couldn't steal from me and sent it to salon.com. They published it. It became number one on their, um, on their website, For quite a while. And then out of that came the idea to write a book about that. And so the money started coming back in a sense, because I wrote a book proposal and then I got an advance. And so that, you know, it was a string of events that happened that would not have happened had I lived in terror and shame and grief.
0: What did it teach you necessarily about money? that experience? Wow.
1: Well, it taught me that um, I, well, it taught me a couple of things about money in particular. Of course, it taught me to be much more diligent, much more mindful about where I both spent my money, invested my money to do a lot of research, to have that be in alignment with my values about what I really cared about, to look into investments that I made. About another level is that it was a level on an emotional level. So there was the actual literal level of money. And I did a lot of research about it because I was so amazed that I had treated my money or treated money the way I did with food and that there were many, many similarities that I would I would budget and splurge the way I had um, dieted and binged, that there was always the sense that there wasn't enough. And so before the ax came down, I would You know, buy this or eat that before I, you know, you know, told myself I couldn't have it anymore. That there was the, what I call the one wrong move syndrome, you know, one more thing and I'm off the deep end. And that had to do with food and that had to do with money and the way I held myself in such low regard, really. And what it also taught me was that abundance, so to speak, Happens first by getting in touch with what I do have. That the scarcity mentality I had, both about food and about money, was not serving me at all. That I didn't, and that it was an inside job prosperity. Now, obviously, there's an external validation of that, but it starts on the inside with focusing on the abundance and the goodness that's already there.
0: Well, I still hate Bernie Madoff, but it sounds (laughs) like he did you in some convoluted, crazy, inexplicable way, a service. (laughs) At least that's how you're seeing it. Oh, I absolutely see it like that.
1: I see it like that because what it taught me was that no situation was unworkable, was that the things that I would, because i really, I mean, you know, it, it losing all your money from 30 years of being self-employed, both my husband and I are self-employed, um, is, you know, up there on the list of things that you never want to happen in your entire life, or that you're afraid of happening, and that you'll never recover from. And, you know, one thing I want to say about this is that there are many made off investors who have not recovered, Mm -hmm. and that it caused a huge amount of suffering, and, and is still causing a huge amount of suffering. So I never lose track of that. I happen to be one of the lucky ones because I, um, had already had quite a committed, uh, inner practice, a meditation practice, um, and had done and, and really looking at myself and becoming aware of my thoughts very quickly. And so because of that, I was better able to keep looking at what I hadn't lost instead of what I had lost. And I was able to be vigilant about that. I also had the resources uh, to start again, so to speak, or to um, write a book, to um write a piece in salon.com. I had resources like very, very good friends who were a support system. But more than anything, as I said, that taught me to um, that that the way that 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 my thoughts really, really matter. And, and that there's a difference between a situation and the story I'm telling myself about the situation. That was the most profound learning that I had there, that the situation, if I told anybody the situation, they would recoil in horror. And that was their interpretation of it. That was their story about it, just as it was my story about it. And we see this every single day. If somebody doesn't answer a text that, I send them. I go into interpreting why they didn't. All that happened was that I sent a text and they haven't answered it. Where I start reacting is what I think their lack of answer means. (laughs) And with the Madoff loss, it was, oh, my God, I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to get to the end of my days and I'm going to be living on the streets out and eating out of you know, cat food tins and, you know, with a a cup and, you know, with big moles on my face with hairs coming out. I mean, I had a whole story about what I was going to look like as a homeless person alone and without money from having lost that money, you know, out on the street, um, even then, you know, the next month, there were horror stories that I was telling myself, and it was to those that I was reacting. So there was the objective situation. And then there was a story I was telling myself about it. And that, that event showed me the difference. And I have never forgotten that ever. So that it's gotten to the point now where I don't believe my thoughts. Or if I start believing the story I'm telling myself about a situation, I realize very soon afterwards that that's different than the situation and that that I'm reacting to the story, not the situation.
0: So then is the goal, if we are to follow the messy magnificent life's guide that when we that to identify a good story versus a or I should say healthy versus unhealthy story the unhealthy story is one that leads us down the path to doom or uh, the circuitous like self-doubt or and then then on the other end the the kind of you know the the healthy story is the one that is leads to abundance is positive is optimistic. Is that basically, am I boiling it down all right? Or is, is there more to it?
1: Well, um, I mean, that's one way of saying it, but people know what th- the way you know, this is not by hearing me say it, or you boiling it down, but in your own body, for instance, if let's just go back to the text. For a second, because that's an easier situation to relate to, mm-hmm. not as dramatic as the Madoff loss. But when you start telling yourself a story about why somebody is doing what they're doing. And you don't actually know. You start feeling small inside. You feel bad about yourself. Sometimes you feel worthless. You feel like you're not a good friend or what did I do wrong? You start looking for things. And in that process, you feel smaller and smaller. And if you're paying attention to your body, you can tell when that's not working. And that's why one of the touchstones that I have in the book is stand in your own two shoes. That's where your power is, be in your body, climb back into your body from your mind, out of your mind and into your body because in your body will have, you'll see the signals, you'll find the signals of what feels good and what doesn't, of what's making you suffer And what's making you feel more alive? And those kinds of stories make you suffer. They're painful. They hurt. And you can feel that if you're paying attention.
0: Step out of your mind and into your body.
1: Yeah. Stand in your own two shoes. Mm -hmm. That's where the power is. That's definitely where the power is. And these days, you know, with the Hashtag Me Too and Time's Up and all this um, this um, news that's coming up for women or about women speaking up, which I think is great, I would also take that back to the body, to your own relationship with the signals that your body is giving you so that you know when you're starting to feel collapsed or paralyzed or small or shrunk, you know that and you pay attention there and then you backtrack and you ask yourself, for instance, has the crazy ant in the attic come in and you disengage and then you can ask yourself, What's not wrong? I mean, there are different ways to deal with this. Another touchstone that I have is instead of focusing on the negativity and what's wrong, to begin asking yourself what's not wrong quite a few times a day so that you can establish a ground of goodness for yourself rather than a a kind of
0: glomming on to negativity. You know, Jeanine, I also think we have a crazy uncle up there in the attic. Mm-hmm. the the patriarchy, right? I think so much of, and your what your book is is a is for largely women, and I think that you mentioned the Me Too movement. I think it could your book couldn't be more of a of a perfect book for the times that we're living in because so much of our self loathing and our kind of uh, feeling of inadequacy is because of the the we live in a patriarchy, you know, and it's sort of we are living life through the lens of men largely, whether we're working at home or in the workplace. Um, I think, you know, we're trying to change that. But I think that that that's part of it, right? Yes,
1: that's definitely part of it. And where the change happens, um, it's happening now, of course, but a big part of the change is is realizing that we have internalized Those messages, those messages that that we are oppressing ourselves on some very subtle and sometimes not so subtle uh, way, 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 level. For instance, on body levels, the body shaming that goes on, the objectification of our own bodies that happens. We that really needs to be paid attention to, needs to be caught, needs to be stopped, because those are the ways that the patriarchy has gotten to us. And so but. It doesn't have to keep getting to us there because now we're doing it ourselves. That's why it's important to name those. What I say a lot is seeing is freeing. And so naming those and and really stopping those is a very good place to start.
0: Here's a fun question as a sidebar. What is something, a big ticket item, Janine, that you're saving up for right now?
1: Oh, a big ticket item I'm saving up for. Yeah, well, a trip to Hawaii after this book tour is over. Uh, A week there of just luxuriating in swimming and spa treatments and things like that. I'm saving up for that now.
0: And that question is brought to us by Chase Slate is our sponsor. I love asking that question because I do think that you know, when you work hard, you should play hard or swim hard somewhere warm <laughs> and sunny. Um, you know, you you connect a lot of dots, Jeanine, in all of your work and in your therapy and in your counseling. It's like so much of our adult life is correlates back to our upbringing and our childhood. And this show is about money, so I'm curious, what was a memorable experience around money? specifically that you had as a child growing up. And I know later in life you had in the beginning, you know, sort of a scarcity mindset. Maybe there's a connection there. But where does it where does it stem from?
1: Oh well, you know, I had parents who came out of World War II and who believed that things were it. That the pinnacle of a life was driving a fancy car. And having and having really good clothes. And so I remember shopping as being one of the ways that I learned to treat myself and, you know, the feeling that if I worked hard, then I deserved this new sweater or I deserved to buy this. That somehow my self-worth and things were related to each other. At what age did you realize that was just a... I'm still realizing the effect that that has on me. I catch myself when I start going there. So those are grooved neural pathways. You know, they started a long time ago. They've had a lot of chance to get grooved in this brain of mine. And so I watch myself when that comes up. And then I stop myself from going down that road.
0: Um, you've been on Oprah many times, Super Soul Sunday, and I had the chance to actually meet you in person at an event in New York. And someone asked in the audience, you know, how do you, how do you get on Oprah's radar? And you said, you don't, <laughs> she finds you, but certainly, but let's be honest. I mean, you can't just be sitting on your couch and writing books and hoping Oprah will discover you that you have to be prolific and proactive. And so what. To your credit what had what what led you to that that experience
1: writing writing a good book, I think doing what I love and you know having publicists who sent it to Oprah's producers it but it it wasn't really a mystery. It was you do what you love and then you try to connect the dots and make as many connections as you possibly can. And that's what happened in my case. It was a blessing and I was really fortunate.
0: And do you remember how you felt in the day or weeks leading up to the first time you were going to meet Oprah? How did you prepare? I was
1: very excited. I didn't really prepare. I was just excited. I knew I knew my material and I had no idea what they were going to ask me or what Oprah was going to ask me. But, um... I just kept grounding myself, that you know, in what I was saying before, you know, standing in my own two shoes, disengaging from the crazy aunt, uh, allowing any feelings that were coming up, uh, you know, reminding myself that I had written a good book. It was like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Pr- homework goes a long way. Sometimes people say, how do you, you know, show up for a moment like that in your life? And it's just hopefully like you said, it, it is in some ways effortless because you've done all the hard work and that's called your body of work, you you know, and so, um, hopefully you can just enjoy a moment like that. That is so epic. And clearly you benefited from the Oprah effect, right? Yes, I did. Talk yeah. about that. Cause you know, like when she gives away all those, you know, when she had the show and she was giving away, say, uh, those Christmas gifts and, shining light on some small business owners or when she would have someone in her book club, a book that was otherwise sitting uh, in, a, in, a, in the world of obscurity, and she would sort of bring it to the masses. What was that effect like for you? What was the sort of measurement of that?
1: Um, it was that my book was on the bestseller list. And you know, the best effect for me is that more and, more and more and more and more and more and more people found out about my work, and that was fabulous. So I would say that was the most long-lasting and most satisfying effect.
0: Incredible. Uh, Oprah for president, I don't know if I want that to happen. I kind of feel like we would we would miss out on Oprah's ability to really make a change. I mean, president's not always the best role for making a change. What what are your feelings on that?
1: I don't actually have any feelings about that. I think it would be great. I could see the good things and I could see the negative things. And I sort of think it's up to her and what she decides she wants to do with her life. It's a big decision. So I don't really have a lot of opinions about that or any for that matter. Mm hmm.
0: Well, it's time now for our So Money fill in the blanks. This is when I start a sentence and just finish it, whatever first comes to mind. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Uh,
1: Not live any differently than I'm
0: living. Yeah.
1: And give chunks of money away. I already give a lot away, but I'd give more.
0: (laughs) Well, I love – this is part of the fill in the blank, so I'll skip to it. If, when I give, when I donate, I like to give to blank because?
1: Um, I like to give to earth-related causes because I feel passionately about trees and animals and, you know, just all things earth-related. Mm-hmm. Planning. The environment.
0: Yeah. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better – or both is
1: an assistant. I have a personal assistant. Thank God for her.
0: What's her name? Luann. Uh, Luann. Luann, you're amazing. I know. There, there. Yeah. It's it's a it's sort of a quiet, thankless job sometimes, but um, that's wonderful. When I splurge, when I really kind of go for the 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 big the big ticket item. Uh, One thing I love to spend my money on is
1: uh, a pair of earrings or beautiful presents from my husband or, um, you know, landscaping. Those three
0: things. I love those answers. No one's ever said earrings. No one's ever said landscapings, And certainly no one's ever said to shower their husband. (laughs) 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 Those are unique and special. I like those answers. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is. That it's not
1: the determination of
0: a person's value.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. So often we tie our self-worth to our net worth. Right. And that, yeah. I think, that happens to the best of us. It's And it's hard to combat that.
1: Yes, right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. All right, Janine, last but not least, I'm Janine Roth. I'm so money because... I'm so money? I'm so money. It could mean you could take it literally, or you could just use it as a way to express what you think makes you... Unique, special? Oh,
1: well, I think um, uh, what makes me unique and special is that I'm willing to tell a lot of stories on myself so that people don't feel alone and say things about myself that people wouldn't ordinarily even tell their best friends.
0: It's true. It's true. It's. I know it's why I really appreciate you and... Uh, the level of openness that you have is certainly unique and especially with your stories about you know, Bernie Madoff and your childhood. It, these are hard stories to tell. I know. I appreciate it so much because uh, even just for 30 no. minutes now, I've been, I've been completely, um, just my mind has really opened up so much more since just uh, 30 minutes ago. So I appreciate it. Thank you. This Messy Magnificent Life, a field guide is available everywhere and we will be sure to share it. Thank you so much, Janine. Thanks, Farnoosh. Bye-bye. Thanks Uh for having me. Thank you so much to Janine for coming on the show. Her website is JanineRoth.com. She's on Twitter at Janine Roth. And the book, again, is called This Messy Magnificent Life. All this information is back at SoMoneyPodcast.com. If you missed any of it, you can download the transcript. You can listen to the audio. You can also leave me a question for our Friday Ask Farnoosh sessions and click on Ask Farnoosh at the top right. If you want to also co host, that's where you can let me know, and I look forward to connecting. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money.